12, in a federal courtroom in Washington, D.C., the biggest antitrust trial in a quarter century will kick off. I'm talking, of course, about the Google search case. Here's what's happening. The Department of Justice is challenging two sets of agreements. First, browser agreements. Google pays to be the default search engine on browsers such as Apple Safari and Mozilla's Firefox. Second up, Android agreements. Google makes the Android smartphone operating system. Google gives device makers and phone carriers options. If they wish, they can use Android for free. They can preload Google apps and they can share revenue on Google searches. These options come with various conditions, such as that Google apps be set as a device's initial defaults. According to the DOJ, these agreements are exclusionary practices in violation of Section 2 of the Sherman Act. Although they're regularly renewed and adjusted, these agreements go way back. We're talking decades. This is interesting. After all, it's not against the law in the United States to be a monopolist. It's not against the law to become a monopolist by providing the best product around. Yet according to the DOJ, these agreements, which took shape before anyone would have considered Google a monopolist, are illegal. There was a remarkable exchange during an earlier hearing in which counsel for the U.S. said that at some point, he didn't clarify when, Google should have decided that it's a monopolist, declared as much to its business partners, and terminated the browser agreements. It should have, and I quote, written a letter to Apple and said, look, we find ourselves in a position where we're a monopolist now. So we're not going to enforce terms that limit who you can do business with because we understand that may be a Section 2 violation. Unquote. You might be starting to see why career attorneys at the DOJ resisted rushing this suit to court before then-Attorney General Bill Barr overruled them. As you can already tell, I am an avowed Google search antitrust case skeptic. I have been since the day the complaint was filed. There's a bit more to the case, and there are certainly plenty of other problems with it. I'm sure we'll get to a lot of that today on this, the Tech Policy Podcast. My esteemed guest is the one and only Jeff Manny, the president and founder of the International Center for Law and Economics. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Corbin. It's great to be here as always. I only wish I had your voice for radio. And unfortunately, uh, I have a face for radio, so. I love your baritone voice. I actually have no idea what you're talking about. Very I, smooth. I <laughs> you know, I'll just go with this. Initial thoughts. Well, yeah, I, I thought, why not pick up with the uh, that great exchange or the language that you quoted from the uh, summary judgment hearing? Wasn't that incredible? It really is. and And I think... I think so the reason I think it's it's we can start there is because it we could categorize it under the question of what would a remedy look like in this case you have this world in which 
it's incredible that the DOJ would argue that Google has to self-identify as a monopolist and withdraw from from certain agreements like that. But let's say that were the result of the case. Like 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 the the case is tried and and Google loses and the judge says um you can't enter into these agreements with Apple, let's say, right? That would be better than what the DOJ was suggesting, which is that Google do that sua sponte, but but even if that were the outcome, just wake up one day, yeah. Like imagine, imagine the conversation then. So, so then Apple, I mean, or the the internal dialogue. Apple says, "Well, um, the thing is, we think it's important that we have a default search provider. Like that's how we've designed our product. We want there to be a default. It would be annoying to consumers if every time they did a search on Safari, they had to pick which browser they wanted to use. And we think the best search provider is Google." So we are going to give them that default position. Does Google then have to go to Apple and say, I know it's not an agreement. You're just making us the default, but can you, we're going to actually have to file a lawsuit to preclude you from making us the default? Because it's not the transfer of money that really matters. In fact, the transfer of money from Google to Apple in exchange for that default position arguably helps consumers it, it provides a huge amount of revenue to apple i can't remember the, the percentage but it's it's a big share of apple's annual revenue and, and presumably mozilla it goes, it's illustrative because like mozilla mozilla it's like 90 percent like plus of their yeah. total revenue go ahead right exactly no, no exactly i think the only way to see those payments is a is as a benefit to consumers they keep mozilla existing and offer keep it being offered for free i assume that it goes to increasing product innovation at Apple, maybe even lowering the prices of Apple products. So it's not the the payment that would be the problem. It's the default position. And I, arguably, Apple could do that completely on its own. And in fact, that's kind of crucial to this case because Google's big argument here is we're the best search provider. That's why we win these competitions to be the default search provider on Mozilla and Apple. And you would be harming consumers if you precluded that. Going back to my question of remedy, I don't even think it would be legal for the court to do this. But you know, the only way to get to a remedy based on on those agreements that could arguably say help Bing to the to the detriment of Google would be to mandate to Apple that it enter into a default agreement with Bing or to preclude Apple from from making Google the default search provider. Yeah. So Judge Meta, who's overseeing this case at the summary judgment hearing, said this multiple times. He said, I don't have Apple in this case. Right. What do you want me to do? And my knowledge of the record here is not encyclopedic, but my understanding is the Department of Justice has been coy throughout this entire litigation about what remedy they want, which is kind of insane. The remedy you're seeking should be one of the first things you're thinking about when you file a lawsuit. What there's is no your goal? There's, there's no case. There's no reason yeah. to bring a case. What is your end game? You don't bring a lawsuit just to, to bring a lawsuit unless you're some kind of shyster. You have a right. goal in mind. And it's very strange that they've not been upfront about that. But it's it's clarifying. You mentioned, so one option is to say, you simply can't bid on being the default Google too bad. And Judge Meta, what he's going to order Apple, as, as he said, it was Safari and Mozilla 
the designers of those products who first chose to have a default. And to back up just a little bit, I mentioned, you know, this is back when Yahoo was the top search engine, by the way. And uh, they can't bid. So that one option would be to have Bing just now be the default. So this whole lawsuit has been brought to benefit a scrappy underdog Microsoft. Ha ha. Or you could go to forcing the browsers to have a choice screen where it pops up and it says, you know, what search engine you want. And as you point out, that's A, a nuisance to consumers, but then B, uh, so now you're saying the browsers can't get the revenue from bidding this default out. So what happens? Well, if Google is genuinely the best product and there's evidence that it is a lot of evidence, actually, maybe we can dive into that. Uh, People are just going to click on Google and choose it. So the browsers are now out the revenue and Google is right back where it started, but with consumers being annoyed. So yeah. what are we doing here? A lot of things there. First, I would just, I would mention that the, the, the choice screen is the, uh, is the route that the European commission went. The European commission had a case against Google based on its agreements with Android uh, OEMs, which is also part of this case. Um, Total shakedown, as I, I wrote about at the time. Go yeah, ahead. yeah, I think that's fair. Um, it completely ignored. In fact, it defined the market such that Apple iOS devices were not in the market. So sure, if you define a market that way, if you define the market to be a single product, it will invariably be a monopolist. So the remedy there was a choice screen and, and it was implemented. And uh, so when I, I, I haven't actually seen it myself, but when you open an Android device in Europe now or a new one, I think it didn't apply retroactively. So if you get a new Android device and you open it up, one of the first things you'll see in the whole setup process is, you know, which search engine do you want to be your, your default search engine? And it's gone through some changes initially the other search providers that got to show up in that choice screen were determined by an auction run by Google. And so ironically, the money actually went to Google for that arrangement rather than money going the other direction. That's now been taken out and and there's just a list of search providers. I won't go into the process by which they're determined. But the whole point is that you have to have this little search screen. Now, I haven't seen clear data on this, but everything I have seen anecdotally suggests that it has done literally nothing to change Google search's share of the market. In other words, when given a choice screen, virtually everyone chooses Google. And in terms of usage, uh, it's always been the case, this goes to a fundamental question in this case, it's always been the case that these so-called exclusive agreements are just default agreements. Anyone knows you can easily access Bing on your computer, on your iPhone, on your Apple device. It takes about four seconds to download Bing to your Android device and make it the default search on your Android device. I'm same in every case, right? So, you know, what's notable is that that's always been available. And even in that world, Google has the market share that it has. And again, nothing about the European remedy, as far as we know, it hasn't been in place for that long, has changed that. Even if that were the remedy you came up with, it's not clear that it would it would change anything. And if it's not going to change anything, why would you bring the case in the first place? The only real consequence of the EU case, in my mind, was the $5 billion fine. Basically, it was a European sure. tax on American tech. That's the uh, Yeah, <laughs> as I said, when the lawsuit first came out, I, I just can't fathom. And I've said this a lot, and it sounds simplistic, and yet I've never gotten past it of these 
attacks just seem to assume that people's fingers are broken. Yeah. The notion that you can just go and type www.bing.com. Right. But the really, it's more than that. Right. I mean, I have an Android device. So as I was preparing for this episode, I wanted to see how sticky these defaults are. So my wife yeah. has an Apple phone. I said, you know, honey, can I see your phone? And, yeah. you know, I'm a little less facile with the iOS system because I haven't used it in a while. So I'm like, okay, how, how long is it going to take me to change the default search engine on Safari, you know? And it took it took me about 30 seconds to find in the settings the it's very similar to what the EU, I think, mandates. It's in there in the Safari settings to, yeah. to change the default search engine. So it's not hard. The defaults don't seem sticky. There's going to be all this dispute over how sticky are the defaults. And I just don't buy that they are sticky. It raises a really interesting question, though, that I think it's worth flagging here, which is um, what do you get? from being the default provider. Why is Google willing to pay $5 billion or whatever it is? It's more than that, isn't it? Like, what's the amount? Can I try to flip it on you? Because I think actually a really interesting way to think about this is why is Microsoft, gazillion dollar company, not willing to pay $6 billion to outbid? Exactly. No, no, I I think that's exactly right. Here's my partial answer to that question. I I think it really is, in a sense, the crux of the case in a number of senses. One of them is is exactly what you just mentioned, and that is the the DOJ calls these exclusive deals, but they're really exclusive, right? Every couple of years, every company is in a position to bid for being the default provider on, say, an iOS device. They are exclusive on Android. We can talk about that separately. But in terms of browsers and Apple devices, these are open competitions for, I don't know the exact term of the contracts, maybe you know, but I think it's just a couple of years, maybe two or three years or something. And then they're re-up the contracts. Google and Microsoft actually bid on these contracts. We know that because Microsoft does pay to be what's called a secondary default on Safari browsers, right? So if you open the like the new tab screen on uh, Safari, you see a couple of icons, I think. I haven't used Safari in a long time, but for different sites you might want to go to. The companies that show up there as that are sort of you know built into Safari when you when you uh, first open your your Mac, they pay for that. And Microsoft pays to be there. So Bing is really easily available from Safari just by opening a new tab page. I think there's a couple of other places where Bing also shows up and Microsoft pays. So we know Microsoft knows about this competition, that they could pay to be there. But most importantly to me is that they all they would be paying for is like it's not an exclusive deal. It doesn't preclude access to any other search providers in any way on your device. It makes it slightly easier for a user to access the search provider that pays for the default position, which gets secondly to your point, Corbin, which is if it's so valuable to have the default position, why doesn't Microsoft pay for it? Part of the answer some people have raised to that is these are revenue sharing agreements and Microsoft doesn't have enough revenue from Bing to ever possibly compete with Google. Google offers whatever, you know, 1% of its advertise, search advertising revenue. That's always going to be much larger than Microsoft can offer. But these deals don't have to be revenue sharing agreements. And Microsoft has in the bank what I think is, is technically termed a shit ton of money. They could literally just pay in cash as much as Google ends up paying Apple through a revenue sharing agreement. 
to occupy that position. They obviously don't think it's worth that. Because everyone could easily switch to Google as a result. All they would be buying is basically what they would be buying is when you first open up your, let's say, Apple device, the first time you search for something, you go to Safari and you search for something and you see, oh, oh, I'm searching on Bing. I don't want that. And then yeah. you'd be paying a later, lot of money to annoy to a lot of people, basically. Right. This is what effectively the DOJ is arguing that that I don't, I don't know that they're explicitly saying this. And, and I wish Google were more clear about saying this is what they're arguing. The DOJ is arguing that that five minute window in which people do one search or two searches before they realize they're searching on Bing mm-hmm. and they switch to Google, that that would be enough to enable Microsoft to become as high quality a product as Google is and compete on the same footing with Google because, you know, more users, everyone agrees, having more users, having more searches increases the quality of your search product. The DOJ is effectively arguing Microsoft has trouble getting there. They have trouble getting that many users because they don't occupy this default position. Effectively, the DOJ has to be arguing that the five minutes of searches that people would make if Microsoft showed up as the default, but it immediately switched to Google, because I think most people would, is enough to give them all the data they need to effectively compete with Google. And that is, I think we can say, absolutely absurd. I mean, it's just silly on its face, right? Yeah, to potentially beat the dead horse here. So so you have to assume that Microsoft has gamed this out and they understand that they would be paying a lot of money to sit in a spot and have people go around them, which we know people can do this from various, you know, for instance, Apple iPhone users generally download Google Maps, even though it's not on the phone. People are not as dim-witted and lazy as the DOJ lawsuit seems to assume, which ties in to the question of quality. And we can maybe circle back to this notion of does Google sitting on a spot help it be the best product? And how insane is it that the DOJ is basically saying you need to make a less good product so everyone else has a chance? Put a pin in that. I I think I've told this story on the podcast before that. And sorry to uh, scandalize maybe more progressive listeners. I am the kind of person who sees that Gillette commercial trying to do social justice and decides, okay, note to self, don't buy Gillette razors. I I like products that sell me their product and don't do other side things. So sure. actually a few years ago, I saw some Google commercial. I was actually trying to find it before the show. I can't find it. Maybe, maybe actually I've seen it and now I'm just a more tolerant person than I used to be, but they had some <laughs> social justice commercial. And I just was like, no, sell me your search engine. Okay, that fine. Let me try another product. And so for about a week, I went on this thing of, fine, I'm going to use some you've spurred me to go try an alternative product. And I'm sorry. I mean, I know it's purely anecdotal, my own personal experience, but other search engines by and large just are still miles behind Google. And one way I figure this out is just search the name of somebody you know. I search my wife's name or I search my own name because I'm familiar with that. I I have a deep knowledge of what the most relevant results will be, right? And you do that on other search engines and often like the person's, if, if it's a friend of mine and that person is at a law firm as an instance, 
Google understands to give you their law firm profile very high in the results. Seems very simple, right? And we're so used to it that we forget that that is a thing a search engine should be doing. And then you search on some other engine and it's giving you high school story they wrote or or something and you know the stuff they're up to now the news results are especially telling in this regard a lot of i searched uh my own name on one of these and all i got in the news result was cbs sports results for someone who doesn't share my name and his athletic accomplishments for my name one of the top things that came up was my result in a 10k race i ran in uh like 2003 there and you I'm, go and i'm sure I'm you not killed it anyway a runner no i did not what people and... are looking for so maybe having done that uh rant that is a good segue into the doj would be kind of crazy to dispute that they have the best product but then they they do this pivot where they say the things that Google is doing to maintain the best product. Okay, so they get all this data and this is a huge advantage and this is how they stay ahead and we need to change that. What is going on there? I don't really understand it, honestly. First of all, it denies, it implicitly denies the innovations in user interface and algorithm that Google has implemented. And Google spends billions literally billions of dollars improving its user interface and its algorithms uh, every year. Um, as if the only thing that matters is the amount of data you have. We all know for you, data is not irrelevant, but it is far from everything. Also, I think it's the case. Uh, I don't know whether the DOJ has evidence that contradicts this, that, you know, it doesn't take all the data in the world to train your search engine. It takes a certain amount of data. Like there's a minimum amount of data you might need to have to train your search engine. Microsoft has that. Microsoft has, has access to all the searches it wants. Actually, it used to have a program. I don't think it does this anymore, but frankly, it could. Where it would essentially, uh, it used programs on the internet to run Google searches, get the results from Google searches, and put that into its database. Like it can literally get the all of the results. It could do all of the searches it can think of, find out what Google thinks are the answer to those searches, and then reverse engineer what the algorithm might need to be. It does not have a problem with data. It also has all the money in the world, right? It can buy all the data it needs. It also now uses artificial intelligence very successfully, right? Um, it has, I think, probably, uh, I don't know what if it's marked, how much its market share has increased, but its incorporation of uh, open AI uh, into Bing has induced me to use it. I've used Bing for the first time in forever because it was a way of accessing OpenAI and I think Dolly and, um, you know, seemed kind of cool. And it's a, an interesting alternative to, to uh, the traditional search engine. I think what we're really talking about here, Google has raised this a couple of times, is these are effectively slotting agreements. These are effectively, these default agreements are effectively marketing. It is Google buying shelf space in a grocery store like Coca-Cola would at eye level. It doesn't mean that Pepsi is not available. It means that that for people who don't care that much about Pepsi and Coke, which one they buy, they might be more likely to buy Coke because Coke is the first one they see and they'll grab it off the shelf. 
that's effectively what they're paying for with these default agreements, because I don't think it gets them much of a data advantage unless they are the better product. And I think sadly for Bing, well, actually, I think Pepsi is one of the worst products in the world. So frankly, <laughs> they're, they're, pro they're probably approximately equivalent. But like, I would never go into a store and think, eh, Coke, Pepsi, well, Coke's easier. I don't have to bend down to get it. That That's just anyone who does that is crazy. But it's kind of the same thing with Bing. Like, even if Bing were in those, you know, bought that that eye level shelf space, I don't think people would choose Bing instead of um, instead of Google. But that's what we're really talking about here. It's not it's not buying access to data or forcing people to use your product. It's like it's buying a slight marketing advantage over your competitors, and it's absurd there... to base an antitrust foreclosure case on that. I don't know why I'm admitting this in public. There was there was a stretch in college where I was convinced that Tab was the best soda. Give me the most artificial sugar-free cola <laughs> that you can and it was always down in the corner on the bottom shelf and right. uh I'm, Coke I'm having I'm having flashbacks. <laughs> Actually, that's probably because of the chemicals in Tab. Yeah, it probably is. It probably is. Um Sorry, did that answer was that, that answering your question about about data? Yeah, yeah. Well, this is another way of coming at the quality question. We all forget that Google was revolutionary, and it wasn't revolutionary because of data. When it entered the market to repeat, Yahoo was dominant. They had data. Google did not. What was the difference? Well, page rank. Page rank is what made the difference. And a factoid that is always worth repeating here. Larry Page was willing to sell the product to, uh, I believe it was Lycos. I may have to correct myself there in the show notes. His only condition Yahoo. was you have to Yahoo. use PageRank. Sorry? I think, it, I think it was Yahoo, actually, itself. It may have actually been multiple uh, deals that fell through because the, the condition he always had was you have to use the product. And that was a sticking point. And I think you're right that it was multiple companies that could have had this for like a couple million dollars should have serious regerts, <laughs> which what I would segue this into, there is this weird evidentiary dispute. It shouldn't be an evidentiary dispute, but having litigated, I know you submit motions in limine on all your legal questions and try to get cheap victories uh, that way in a trial. It's just part of the trench warfare of litigation. So yeah. the, the Department of Justice wants to exclude evidence. And I've seen disputes online of how sweeping their request is. But in a nutshell, they don't want this trial to have discussion of the fact that these agreements might improve Google's search engine. And they don't want to have discussion of the fact that these agreements might in, uh, improve the browsers themselves. The government's position is exclusionary conduct it doesn't matter if it makes your product better. And that blows my mind for a couple reasons. Like, first of all, what you're basically saying is there should be a less good product so other people can play too, which is totally anathema to antitrust law as I know it. And then secondly, how do you compare, and this is not my original insight here, but you know, how heavy this rock is versus how long this tree is or whatever. Like, how do you... How do you weigh the detriment of the exclusionary conduct, which we've already discussed is should be small, but nonetheless, how do you how do you weigh that or compare it to the amount of the benefit that Google might get from 
the data and anyway thoughts first of all i think you're being a little too kind to the doj in characterizing what they're asking for i'm gonna read the literal quote the language from the maybe second paragraph of their motion in limine plaintiffs respectfully move to preclude google from introducing evidence at trial for the purpose of arguing that the quality of its products insulate google from a finding of liability or actions taken to improve its products cannot support a monopoly maintenance claim under section two of the sherman act it's not limited as i read it to showing that being the default improved their product it's not limited to showing that any of the conduct taken was the cause of their product being better although that is very very relevant that you're right that that is where the action should turn but if i read it right they want to preclude google from introducing evidence at all suggesting that the quality of its products insulate them from liability meaning including suggesting that people would choose google no matter what i think right i mean google part of google's argument is we're better than the alternative uh than bing or the other alternatives here and um the amount of foreclosure would be extremely small here because everybody would choose us even if we weren't the default and i think their argument is you can't say that you can't argue that you being better is something that precludes liability here maybe i'm reading Doesn't too that much into completely it completely but... fly in the face of uh First of all, as a motion in limine, it's insane. As Google points out, they're not actually pointing to specific pieces of evidence to exclude. That's normally what a motion in limine is. It's this piece of evidence is defective and you should exclude it from trial. They're actually asking, they're basically saying Google can't even raise in its you know arguments, let alone pr produce evidence to show that, well, I guess really producing evidence to show this, that in general, its Google, its products are better and that contributes to why it should win in this case. It sounds like motion in limine for the district court to yeah, declare that the Microsoft DC circuit antitrust decision was wrongly decided. And for, as the way you and I read that decision, that's true. I'm not sure it's the way they read that decision. But oh, oh you mean if uh, analogously? Yeah, right. It's a gag well, order. It's I crazy. mean, so one thing that's been raised, and it's worth bringing up at the outset, of course, I said biggest antitrust trial in a quarter century, and that is an allusion to the Microsoft trial. And that case, you had a operating system giving its own browser exclusive placement in a way that was a much stickier default than what we now have today. It was a lot more trouble to go and get yourself another internet browser and arguably of actually lower quality. I think it's very fair to argue that at the time Netscape was superior to Internet Explorer. But my understanding, and you can correct me, is that no one at the time disputed that if Internet Explorer was indeed of higher quality, that counted in Microsoft's favor in the case. In fact, let me let me just add to your characterization that it helps. Another part of that case, and that I think is actually more, uh, what you described is probably most relevant to the Android agreements in this case. What's most relevant to the Mozilla and Apple agreements in this case is another part of the Microsoft case where Microsoft also apparently tried to prevent third parties from distributing Net Netscape. Right. So very much like 
access to distribution, which is really what we're talking about in this case, was being foreclosed or Microsoft attempted to and entered into agreements to foreclose it. So third parties couldn't distribute Netscape. Um, I can't remember the, there were, you know, AOL, for example, couldn't do it or other software providers couldn't do it. The reason I think that's a, a nice point to look to is because there's no way you couldn't and they didn't try to argue that that foreclosure of distribution of Netscape by third parties improved Microsoft's product in any way, right? You can't, you couldn't argue that. I mean, and it wasn't an issue in the case. Here, however, and this gets to your characterization of the motion in limine, which I think is the one, again, I was just trying to say it's it's broader than that, but it doesn't matter. The real, where the rubber hits the road is exactly there. Everyone agrees. The DOJ has a centerpiece of their argument is that greater scale improves the quality of a general search engine's algorithms. This is quoting from the government's complaint. Additional data from scale allows improved automated learning for algorithms to deliver more relevant results. The most effective way to achieve scale is for the general search engine to be the preset default on mobile devices, computers, and other devices. So the government is saying, absolutely saying, these deals that Google has entered into contribute to improving the quality of Google's product. They would contribute to improving the quality of Bing's product too, but they also contribute to improving the quality of Google's products. That is not what was at issue, as you point out, in the Microsoft case. You had a much better argument in that case that, that, that Microsoft was doing something to hurt a competitor and not help itself other than through anti-competitive means. Here, the DOJ itself makes the argument that these, these agreements help Google. What they're not saying, but I think they would have to say, is Google's products are already so good that these agreements don't actually make them any better anymore, doesn't make Google better anymore and just preclude Bing from achieving minimum viable scale. In other words, analogizing it back to the Microsoft case. But that's not what they've said, and I don't really think they could say that. I'm certain they don't have evidence to show that. And we know Google's product has been improving immensely over the years, I assume in part because of the greater scale and access to data they have. Not entirely, of course, but partly. Yeah, and to, to bring it back to the, the cost benefit issue, I mean, even if, I, if someone follows you down sort of all those steps, so you'd still be left saying, okay, is the improvement of Google's product more than the improvement that Bing would be if it could get the scale multiplied by the number of users to get the total yeah. benefit? And maybe it makes me a bit of a antitrust extremist here, but not only do I not understand how you do that, and here I'll try to tie in some discussion of the Android issues, I don't get how these cases arise or have any oomph to them mm. when the underlying issue is company A creates product, creates market even. Company A having created product sets terms of how product will work, product that would not exist or innovation that would not exist, but for company A, government comes in or competitor comes in, cries about those terms and demands that the new innovative thing that wouldn't otherwise exist be different. That is my long-winded way of saying, Google comes in, sees a market opportunity, 
uh, in the wake of the creation of the iPhone, there's a market here for a non-iOS operating system. Hey, let's do something different. Apple's got its walled garden. It sets very strict terms. We are going to create an operating system that other people can tinker with and use on their own devices. We will make it free. All we ask is, among other things, that you don't tinker with it to the point that it's not compatible with the apps that we make. The whole point of what we're doing, or one of the points of them, is that we want to not have everybody be designing different apps for different systems. So you get a huge cost saving there, uh, not only for Google, but basically for any app maker. And then, you know, we'd like some uh, modest defaults on adopting our suite of apps. And hey, actually, if you want to share revenue with us, you know, there's some additional terms there, but we'll we'll throw that in too. And all of this is a deal that is, uh, it didn't fall from the sky. Google innovated this. And so my brain sort of breaks. Maybe I'm just being curmudgeonly and not open-minded, my, but my brain breaks about how you even construct a case where you start complaining about the way they went about doing the innovation. It's deeply problematic. As you pointed out, you were discussing the innovation there you were discussing was um, Google's agreements with Android phone OEMs, Android phone manufacturers like Samsung, which facilitate this, this enormous ecosystem, right? Obviously, Google thinks it earns revenue for Google search. They use that revenue to develop the Android operating system, which they generally give away for free. That enables Samsung and Nokia and whoever else makes Android phones to produce their phones more cheaply. The, there are some conditions placed on that. If you want to have Google apps, you have to have multiple Google apps, but you can also have any other apps you want, basically. And as you said, if you want to share in revenue from us, you can adopt a couple of additional restrictions, I think mainly limited to not pre-installing competing apps, but they're still available to be downloaded. All of that has enabled this massive Android ecosystem to, to come into existence. And Android phones are clearly the primary, if not in some cases, only source of competition for Apple phones. So imagine what would happen in a world in which you put constraints on that such that that growth is curtailed for the next Android developer to come along. And you're effectively saying that preserving the ability for Bing to get some kind of a preferential treatment in the Android ecosystem is worth sacrificing the competition between Apple iOS and Android because you can't separate the two. That discussion of iOS and Android brings us into you know a very important topic, which is defining your market. Um, to this point, a lot of our discussion you could, if you wanted, just take for granted, okay, fine, Google is a monopolist, but is there exclusionary conduct uh, or is it just providing the best product? And you could, basically, that's what Google did in their motion for summary judgment. But there is the issue of market definition. And I think there's just so much confusion in search. When I Google how tall is the Eiffel Tower? Or like, what's the population of Tokyo? 
uh, generally speaking, Google's just not making money off of that. They're not, uh, I, I don't know, maybe they give a, an ad for Visit Tokyo on the on the population one, but you know what I mean? Uh, most of my searches are for a small these number of searches are monetized by exactly these mundane facts. But I think a lot of us, even I, sometimes, you know, you get a little confused and you think you're somehow in a market, even when you're doing these searches that are in effect free. So what is the market definition here? And I also get a little confused because we're talking about browser agreements. We're talking about Android agreements. I search on my laptop and on my smartphone very seamlessly. Even as I'm working in the day, I'll do a search on my smartphone in the kitchen and then later do something on the laptop. I don't live my life as if they're separate markets. So what's going on here with market definition? And uh, does Google have a case that they are in, you know, locked in, in real competition there? I think you're... Right, that market definition in these sorts of um, both two-sided and and what were sometimes called attention markets are are very complicated and difficult. And I don't think that the courts and agencies and parties have done a great job of um, reaching a, a ideal consensus on it. So one of the problems, among the many problems that I think you intimated, is... Um, is we often define these markets in terms of what's being provided for the end user, the person you know using the product, right? So search, right? In this case, for example, one of the defined markets is the market for general search results, general search results, meaning it's limited to Bing and Google and DuckDuckGo and um, I don't know, there's many more these days, but but effectively that, right? It, that excludes from the market, Amazon, Yelp, ChatGPT, Facebook, talking to your friend, looking something up in the encyclopedia, Wikipedia. A lot of information sources are excluded from that market because they, in part, because they superficially don't look like exactly the same thing. In some cases, they're providing exactly the same service, but, you know, it's different. It's not a box on a web screen that you type something into and you get a list of um, search results or in some cases direct answers from google you know like here are the hotel listings you look for you're looking for um is that a, 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 whether that's an appropriate way to circumscribe the market is a is a really interesting and difficult question i think um i know you want me to have some firm answers on this but i i honestly don't i I think, in, interestingly, in this case, for example, the the state attorneys general's claims, which were almost entirely based on harm to so-called vertical search providers like uh, Yelp, uh, were tossed out at summary judgment. And the reason is yeah, because... I, I didn't even mention the states in my intro because they flopped they, so they hard. So, they, they flopped so hard that it's not even worth mentioning. But let, let's mention them now. Uh, they essentially brought the classic search bias claims. Yelp doesn't show up in as high in the in the Google search rankings as they would like, and this is a a problem for competition. But is it really a problem for competition? The market here, everyone agreed, was defined as general search engines. Now, I think we can all agree that in lots in in some dimension, Yelp competes with Google, but they don't offer general search. You can only search for a limited number of things on Yelp. 
And everyone agreed that the relevant market here was general search. Now, why did they all agree that the relevant market here was general search? Because if the market were, were for local hotel information or, or what, I don't, how do you characterize Yelp? Local information, local geographical information. If that were uh, reviews of, yes, whatever, you know, it's like, yes, reviews of services. Unfortunately for Yelp, Google would not have a dominant position in that market. The reason that the the Colorado and the other state plaintiffs here didn't allege that Google monopolized or acted anti-competitively in the vert in these vertical search markets is because they couldn't have even established that Google was had a dominant share in those markets. So, which tells you something about the arguments they are making, right? They li- had to limit themselves to the general search market. And it turns out the judge said in the general search market, Yelp is not a competitor. Like Yelp does not compete for general search. And if Google is hurting Yelp in the general search market, it's not hurting general search because nobody would go to Yelp to search for what was George Stigler's first article, right? But that doesn't even get to the whole of it, right? Which is, these are two-sided markets. And on the other side of the market is advertising. And there's also alleged uh, a market for general search advertising. Now, again, it's general search advertising for the same reason I said before. If it were limited to Yelp's market, Google wouldn't be a dominant player and uh, they would their case would be tossed out at the outset. Advertising clearly cuts across lots of different markets and is, and is in some ways, I think often where it's probably most uh, relevant to be looking for harms in these in these you know two-sided online platform antitrust issues. But it makes it really complicated because if you know the companies that advertise on Google search may very well be the same companies that advertise on Yelp and Amazon and uh, billboards and television and lots of other places. So if you are looking at the advertising side of the market, you are even sort of more clearly bringing in these other players that don't look the same from a superficial consumer perspective, but from an advertiser's perspective may very well be substitutes. Now, there's nothing to say you can't allege two different markets that have very different scope at the same time, but in these two-sided markets, it becomes really even more complicated because the effect that you're alleging on one side of the market is probably affected by the effects you're you're alleging on the other side of the market. It's really convoluted. It's really complicated. I don't think there's a good answer to these these questions. I think maybe your question was asked with me hoping I would say, I do have a clear answer to this and they're doing it wrong here. I think you have to accept that there's artificiality to market definition. And I think you have to accept that there's a real complexity in these two-sided information and attention markets. Uh, and yeah, I generally think we're we're defining these markets far more narrow, narrowly than we should by looking at these sort of superficial similarities like a search engine compared to a search engine when actually um, we should be looking at the market for eyeballs, for for time users spend looking at something. Yeah, my, uh, my sense watching this lawsuit maybe from 10,000 feet is that there is a habit. And I'm, a, again, to repeat, I, I I get this. I totally get this impulse to say, yeah, we understand that the market here really is for advertising because that's where the money is. Yeah. 
and having <clears throat> made that acknowledgement to slip right back into treating it as if it is a market for search. That's so then the lawsuit ends up being subpoenas with fights of the other search engines. And we're not bringing into the lawsuit who should be here, uh, Facebook or Amazon and exploring their advertising markets. And I think there is a degree to which that puts the entire lawsuit at risk of being based on a non sequitur. That's a great way to put it. You see that all the time. This is what I meant by saying, I think the courts and the uh, agencies and even the parties have not done a great job of helping to get us in that direction for understandable reasons. In in some cases, the parties, for example, are, you know, rarely do they challenge the, I mean, they always, you know, challenge the market definition that's offered by the agencies, but they almost never win. And often they concede it, even when they know it's, it's not right, because they think they can still win on the basis of the market definition that's alleged. And they understand that they're not likely to get the market definition that's more accurate. That's unfortunate, though, because it prevents us from having exactly the discussion you just suggested, Gordon. And I just don't I don't see that happening in courts. Honestly, among a lot of practitioners and, and economists and folks around the antitrust sort of universe, they kind of buy into it, too, in a way that seems really inappropriate and really inappropriate, especially this gets back to your question about Android, when you consider that all of these things, even beyond the complexity of understanding that, um, uh, you know, Facebook from an advertising perspective is clearly a competitor with Google, even though one of them is a search engine, one is a social network. They're also all embedded in these giant ecosystems where each piece of the ecosystem is potentially facilitating innovations elsewhere or is, is set up the way it is because the ecosystem compensates somewhere else in the network. And they're not doing this because they get some competitive advantage in this small part of the ecosystem. They don't give a shit about that. They care about the broader ecosystem and, and they're optimizing for that. But if all you're doing is looking at this one small part of the ecosystem, you're not, you're not taking account of optimizing this much bigger. um, Well, of course, uh, Lena Khan's, Amazon Antitrust article says that that's the whole that's the whole evil. It's this nefarious Rube Goldberg machine by which they can spread their tentacles out. I mean, that article is crazy and and I don't agree with that. It could be that in some cases. It's not like if you did look at the sort of ecosystem as a whole, you couldn't potentially find any competitive harms. But I think you're far more likely to get it wrong by looking at narrow subsets of those ecosystems mm-hmm. than by looking at the ecosystems as a whole. And frequently just to echo something you said before that I think is really important and and underappreciated, <clears throat> um, you'll see that anyone who follows this case is going to see it in all of the reporting on the case. Even when they're talking about the advertising market, they're going to slip into talking about the relationship between consumers and uh, you know to users and the search engines and various characteristics of what is clearly a consumer-facing side of the market, kind of without noticing it. It's and, just very intuitive. And, yeah, it's intuitive, right? Because because yeah, it's intuitive, and and yet it may not actually be uh, very informative. Well, I'll give Google credit for this on the topic of market definition. Generally, these lawsuits, IBM, 
we, I would put it to you that we see this with the Facebook lawsuit now, they don't move fast enough to matter even if they were valid because of creative destruction. So handed to Google, they've been very successful as a search engine uh, throughout the course of this litigation, but we're seeing generative AI, as you yeah. mentioned earlier, they certainly are not capable of resting on their laurels. So uh, it, it will be interesting to see how this market evolves. I yeah. like to joke about you know how we're gonna have the, the AR search on our glasses or implanted into our <laughs> brains or whatever. If it's implanted, I'll do it. The they are glasses are too com well, they'll get smaller, I guess. When we'll, it becomes we'll get you we'll get you some contact lenses, Jeff. Yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Um can I ask you a question? I know oh, we're, please. we're running out of time, but but um but I think you're absolutely right to point out that Google is has always faced competition from lots of sources, but is you know in a particularly competitive moment right now with generative AI. Let's say Google gets past that. Like it, it has already implemented AI, as I understand, you know, in various ways into its product. It's, you know, it's there was a Wall Street Journal article about product. how it's not looking like uh, Bing is gonna, right. at, at this moment, at least capture great market share from its right. chat GPT rollout. Go ahead. But what if it keeps happening? Like, what is the... The, I mean, I have an answer to this. I'm not, I'm, but I'm, but I'm curious the way you know. How, how do you? How, what do you tell the people out there who, um, uh, who say, look, you know, Google is going to be like a perpetual monopolist, and and I know we've said that in the past, and it's always been technological innovation has unseated the monopolist. But I mean, at some point, um, uh, it might be that Google really is able to withstand any kind of challenge to its dominance, at least in search for, you know, the foreseeable future, 50 years longer than, or a hundred years longer than, uh, we've had any other monopolist persist. Is that inherently a problem? I think some people think it is. And what, what would one do about it if it were a problem? One of my favorite things about having you on Jeff, you're actually one of the few guests who ask me questions back. So fantastic. Um, the first problem is that view, call it, I don't know, the Matt Stoller view, inherently assumes that corporations control society to a much higher degree than I think they do. And obviously, I'm not going to be able to make that case in a few seconds, but I find that it remains the case that the great, the great monopolist is the government. Um, and I am not worried about corporations being able to manipulate society in the way that these people fear. Therefore, I don't have a problem with Google having sustained success as long as it is based on having the best product. That's first. Second, to get into that, I am a very fickle consumer, as I think many people are. I have plenty of nice things I could say about Google, but I would drop them to the curb in a heartbeat if they weren't providing me the best experience. And I would say that of virtually any company providing me a product, right? I mentioned earlier in the show how I, one of their commercials annoyed me <laughs> and I ditched them for like a week and came crawling back. I think it's eye-opening, and Google makes this case, so I guess I am shilling for them here, but it's true. They say, hello, everyone. Like, Please go back and remind yourselves what our product looked like 15 years ago 
and 12 years ago and eight years ago, we are iteratively improving and you don't notice it day to day, but actually over the course of years, um, we have kept a fire under our butts and you see it today with, uh, you know, I'm plugged into their, their new AI plugins. You know, they, they said you could sense the fear bordering on panic in their last, um, convention all the presentations they were giving on ai microsoft getting that head start on them um really got them moving um and we could have a separate conversation where i enrage all of the ai ethics people by saying google made this huge mistake by being way too obsessed with the like ethic plans and stuff and so they were caught flat-footed by nimble competitors uh rolling out their ai products more quickly they actually had a lead and they squandered it well, now they're catching up. And when I Google things, I'm already getting AI answers and I'm playing around with them and I'm comparing them with the organic search. I'm sure that will continue to improve. So I, as a human writer, I bet feel a lot like a lot of people at Google when I look at the innovation that's occurring and I wonder, am I going to have a job doing what I do in 10 years? <laughs> I would feel the same way if I were running a search engine right now. I wouldn't feel comfortable that, uh, you know, you and I, on the last time you appeared, talked about the line about, you know, the great benefit of the monopolist is a is an easy life. And that's the real fear of monopoly. And I don't see that at all in the market. So, so that, to that's a, wrap that, it up, no, I'm not terribly concerned. You think as long as, and and this is where I am too, but but I don't know if it's a, if it's a sufficient answer to to people who don't think about this like we do you know as long as they are improving as long as they are facing competition that it, that requires them to improve their product and manifestly google has in in infinite ways it's not a problem and in fact i mean that's fair it, it also because you know competition doesn't always mean that the competitor sometimes or even ever wins it means there is a competitor that forces the available products to get better whether it happens to be the incumbent who offers the better product or the challenger doesn't shouldn't really matter to consumers as long as they're getting the better product right yeah i mean here here will be my closing thought i mean when i think about antitrust i think it's a huge mistake to look at tech what i'm concerned about are two things dark markets and barriers to entry what are dark markets the place where blatant antitrust violations occur are things like the market for concrete in the tri-state area. Uh, you know, the people who are selling sand that goes into glass in South Florida. I'm not literally no, pointing anyone out. It actually is amazing how often you have... Um antitrust suits usually collusion cases in those kinds of markets even like repeatedly in the same market whatever we're doing is not deterring this from happening because it happens in almost exactly the same way sometimes in exactly the same markets on a daily basis totally. that is where antitrust violations genuinely occur and i see every now and then a doj headline of um you know Imagine. doj oh, cracks down on glass retailer or whatever 
in local market. And I think that's fantastic. So that's dark markets. And then, uh, you know, I'm as happy to kick airlines in the shins as anyone, but there is a degree that um, if you have monopoly airports, like natural monopolists, they're the airport for a metropolitan area. You have highly regulated products, the airplanes themselves. You have high re highly regulated market. Yeah, you're going to have a hard time ginning up competition because of all these decisions that have been made, in a, most of them by the government. You don't have that in search engines. So, uh, you know, the search engine market is not the market in hospitals. Uh, so I just think there's a misplaced, you know, the, tech is the bright, shiny object, yeah. frankly. I don't think, but um, we should probably wrap it up. This has been so much fun. You should have me on more. And in fact, what you should really do is have me on to interview you. Any, any time, man. Uh, you, well, you should, you should. Uh, does icle you guys need a podcast i don't do podcasts i mean i do podcasts like this but i don't i don't believe in doing our own it's a satur oversaturated market and um and it takes too long to listen to them i would just read the transcript anyway what you're saying is it's not a dark market and the barriers to entry are low are non-existent it's uh it's basically the chicago corn market uh perfect competition okay exactly. uh <laughs> I'm, it's always such an honor to have you on. I've been a fanboy of yours for so many years and of ICLE. Jeff, you're welcome back on. And one of these days, yes, I will throw caution to the wind and we're going to go full Joe Rogan and just talk for like four hours. Um, I agree we should do that. Jeff Manny, president and founder of ICLE. I am Corbin Barthold of Tech Freedom. This has been the Tech Policy Podcast. If you enjoy conversations like this one, please do go subscribe wherever you listen. Also give us that five-star rating. Helps us out a lot. And while you go do that, I will get started on the next one. Thank you all. Until next time. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.